0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. Find our seats. We do have a. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for waving. Back there. The morning service says hello. these days is joy, and yet what you will discover, I pray that you discover this morning, whether it is through the psalms, the readings, and especially the sermon, is that even in the midst of a time like this, or times that are worse, there is a place for rejoicing, there is a place for contentment, there is a place for joy. What is handed down to us by the world, the framework in which they tell us to live and to think. Feel, it will not give the joy that Jesus Christ gives. And so I pray that as we remember who our God is, what he is doing through Jesus Christ, that in a new way that perhaps you've never seen before, you will rejoice beginning today. Let's go before him in prayer for our worship. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to worshiping you today. Jesus Christ, we have submitted to your wisdom. We are submitting to your wisdom. We are submitting to your ordained will on how you have decided to run your church and really, in your providence, all of history. We are focused on our times and worshiping you in our times. Lord, we ask that you would show us your glory. Show us your mercy, your long-suffering. Show us Christ. We ask that we would apprehend you by faith today, and as we do, by way of the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring us to praise, that there would be a rejoicing here under this roof, and that we would be joining in the choir across the globe that is giving praise to your name. A choir that has circumstances sometimes far more harsh and difficult than us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a discovery of your joy. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Our call to worship is from Psalm 5. Make sure your cell phones are silenced so we don't have any interruptions this week. And it's in verses 10 through 12. So let's go ahead and stand for our call to worship. And then fittingly, we're going to move right into rejoicing that the Lord has came. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Amen. Let's sing together, rejoice, the Lord is again. with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Behold your Christ.
1: was more.
0: distinction, and that is our sin. Lord, it is the way, perhaps most of all, present on our minds, that often separates us from you. And we are now coming to a time, Lord, where we want to acknowledge this. We want you to use the elder that you give to us today to be a blessing to us that we might acknowledge this. And we pray, Lord, that you would take it away. That we would be more and more like you. In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated.
2: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good We're glad to be gathered to worship together. We are uh, s- certainly missing those who are... Uh, having to worship with us by distance, but we are overjoyed to be here today. I think um, you may have noticed that I have a different name this week than last week. That's simply because our brother Jeremiah was called away for business very short notice, so I'm filling in for him. I hope you don't mind. I am uh, I'm getting sick of hearing certain things nowadays. There's a couple words I hope I never have to hear again for the rest of my life. One of those words is baseless. If I don't ever hear somebody say that something's baseless ever again in my life, I think I'll be okay. The other word is unprecedented. I'll be alright if nobody tells me that something's unprecedented ever again. Well, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in that old cliche, that statement that none of us can remember who said but it's been around forever, that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. I'd like a slight variation of that, that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. Because we know, from the Lord's word, that there is nothing new under the sun. We are not in strangest times that have ever been. We are simply in strange times, and they've been strange throughout the history of the human race. God's people have dealt with strange times. And I want to remind you this morning of a time that was certainly strange for God's people. It was a time when the Lord used the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to punish his people, to judge them. They had been taken away into captivity. They lived in a strange land among strange people with strange rulers and strange rules. And I'm sure at some of the time while the Israelites were there, in that captivity... They probably were forced to wear strange garments. They probably had strange rules, maybe even strange commands from the rulers that they had to follow, that they may not necessarily agreed with. And there was something else that happened to them. The ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, made more than just a strange rule. He made an ungodly rule. And he made a statue of himself, an image made out of gold, And he commanded that every person, when they heard the sound of the music, do you remember what they were to do? They were to bow, and they were to worship that statue. He made that command of every person in his kingdom. And if you recall, in Daniel chapter 3, there were three children of God, given to us by name, who did not follow the order They did not follow the statue worship command. And I want to just read a short section of of Daniel chapter 3 for us this morning. Nebuchadnezzar was so concerned that people would obey him and worship the statue as he decreed, that he said the penalty for disobedience is death. Death in a fiery furnace. And when it was... Brought to his attention that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow and worship the statue. This is what happens, starting in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, If you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, then good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, let it be known to you, O King, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. I think you remember what happened in the rest of that story And their faithfulness and their evidence that they served God was made clear to everybody that was there and that witnessed. And God was glorified. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. They were not afraid of the entire crowd of people in Babylon who were obeying while they were not. They were not afraid of the fiery furnace that was so hot that it killed the people who were tasked with making the furnace hotter. They were not afraid. You know who they were afraid of? They were afraid of the one true living God, the God whom they worshipped and served. And they worshipped and loved and served God so much that even if he chose not to spare them, they would not give in. They would not cower. They would be strong to the end by God's grace and mercy. Brothers and sisters, we need to examine ourselves. Examine our anxieties. Examine our fears. Are we afraid of man? Are we afraid of rulers? Are we afraid of arbitrary rules? Or are we afraid of Now, while we are going to submit to the authorities that are put over us by God himself, and we are going to deal with the different uh, directives and decrees that they give, and we are going to do our best to obey, as soon as something comes that is contrary to our worship of God, we are not to obey, and we are not to be afraid. Because God, the God we serve and worship, he can spare us. and Even if He chooses not to, we worship Him. We will not worship another God. We will not serve another God. We must not be afraid. And yet we know we are. Every one of us, at times. And so what I want us to do is to go to our time of confession of sin and we will pray and we will confess that we have often had more fear of viruses or fear of... Of political opponents, or fear of atheism, or fear of fill in the blank. We've had more fear of that than we have of our own God, who has proven time and time again that it is His way and His will. that matters. I will start by praying for us corporately, and then there will be a time of silence in which you can pray to God in the silence of your own hearts, and then together we will respond in a song. Let's pray. Most holy and awesome God, there is so much that we cannot fully grasp or understand. So much happens to us that is outside of our control. It is understandable when we are afraid. But Father, we recognize that it is sin when we are more afraid of the world than we are of you. And when we are more afraid of your opponents than we are of you. We know that they are not as powerful as you. They do not have the power to decree and to speak things into existence. So, Father, help us. Help us to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Help our faith to be so strong that we would never imagine leaving you or serving another God for fear of you, not fear of you. Father, bless us that we will see how, in this great trial, the trials that come throughout our own lives, help us to see how you are in control and how we can flee to you, no matter what it is that we need. Lord, we ask that you, by your Spirit, would give us eyes to see, convict us of our sin, that we may confess it to you now and begin that long a joyful journey of repentance. (coughs) Pray, Father, that you would now hear the prayers of your people. through our gracious we now go to God's word and we see that our confession is not in vain. For our gracious God forgives our sins. From Psalm uh, Psalm 85, verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. That describes the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that describes you if you are the elect of God. Let us stand and let us joyfully respond by singing together, Arise, my soul, arise. Pray especially that you will continue to bless Severn Run, that this church, this fellowship, this portion of your body would continue to serve you, glorify you, and to fear you alone, and to prove that with our own resources, those that you've given us. We thank you, God. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.
0: you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him, he also perished. And all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would introduce us to this reality in which your church exists, where they are able not only to be bold, but to rejoice in suffering. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Over the last few weeks, we've been wrestling through a tension. It is a tension that we see within the passages we've studied together. It is a tension in our very lives. The tension is that in some sense we are promised victory over God's enemies. And yet... The victory looks and feels different than victory portrayed to us from our culture. Our victories happen in the midst. I think it's uh, somebody in the south Are we good? Our victories are victories that happen in the midst and through our suffering for the kingdom. In some sense... Genesis 3.15 is still true of the church in that not only will there be a crushing, but there is a bruising. And that ends up being surprising, especially to modern disciples of Jesus Christ. The adversaries of God will bruise us, but Christ, even through his church, will crush his head. In many ways. Now last week, what we were asking, okay, well, if that's what victory looks like, that there is this kind of battle, then how are we to remain bold while we're doing that? How do we engage in such a war? And the one answer that we saw last week, which is among many answers, is that God has exalted Jesus of Nazareth to his right hand. By faith, we exist under Jesus as our head, and we receive hope from our ascended Lord from his ascended presence. Now we use the illustration of the Lion King and several people have called last week's sermon the Lion King sermon, which is not what I intended at all, but that kind of thing happens. I would say hope in the ascended presence of Christ is what we're supposed to get. So let's move there. Yes. This week, I want to ask pretty much the same question, but I want to ask it in real light of a, a, a further reality that we see within the passage. Notice that in the passage, certainly there is boldness. There's an answer to the prayers that we saw in chapter four. But did you notice they went one step further, and they actually rejoiced after being beaten. Now that takes it to a whole other level. I've seen people motivated by anger, but how could you, in the midst of this, be motivated by joy? It seems like there's something different here amongst these people that we need to discover. Now the answer is going to come from looking closely at the example, not only of our passage, but how suffering took place in other passages and how they were able to have joy in the midst of it. And it will be nothing less this morning than a view of reality that you are not typically conscious of as a modern disciple. So I'd ask that you really lend your ear to the preaching this morning. To discover this reality where you can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Let's start with just a brief narrative that's given to us in chapter 5. And there's this new character that shows up. His name is Gamaliel. I think that you've already heard his name before in Bible stories. But notice how he de-escalates the situation. And the reasoning that he uses. He reasons that if God is for the followers of Christ, then they're fighting against God. If they continue, they should just cease If, however, God is not with them, and that's what he's anticipating, then just like the other two people that he gave as examples, they're going to fade into the background, and this will come to nothing. The council hears Gamaliel and decides to go with him in his plan and his reasoning, but to display a kind of power and a kind of warning, they end up beating the disciples. Perhaps this is 39 Lashes. And it is here in this moment that we see that there must be a deeper reality present within the life of the disciples that takes them beyond boldness and into the rejoicing. There they are bruised in the way that we've been talking about it, in that scriptural theme. But here they are responding not only in boldness but having joy. it says this in 541 so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and then, in this joy daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Whatever they have I want it and I know that you do too the council beat them to deter them and to shame them But notice that the opposite happens. The disciples received their shame as an honor. What allows a person to do that? They were not discouraged, but they rejoiced. They were not unworthy, but considered themselves to be honored, to be counted worthy of suffering shame for the name of Christ. In that honor and privilege and joy, they boldly kept preaching and teaching. You can see what I'm after in the sermon this morning. What's the underlying reality where they're able to ascend to that place? Where they're able to rejoice even in that kind of affliction? Well, it's going to be difficult for us as modern disciples because we are pretty detached. Generally speaking, this is over generalization, but generally speaking, we're detached from the way that they viewed the reality of the world. And therefore, we are detached from their experience on how they could rejoice in the midst of this. I've seen you rejoice as a modern disciple. I've even seen you rejoice in suffering. But if suffering goes on for too long, I tend to see rejoicing no longer part of the picture. It becomes difficult to pick up your countenance. And you kind of think until you make it. I mean, is that the reality? Is that how we should go ahead and explain this reality within the passage with the disciples? They're faking it until they make it? Or is it like how you get through a really tough gym routine? No pain, no gain. Is that the reality? It's neither one of those realities that we tend to think in in order to be able to make sense of this situation. It's a different and new reality that we need to be introduced to. Now, as modern disciples, and this may not apply to you, I'm just speaking about kind of the the spirit of our age. The attitudes and thoughts that I see present within the church. Not necessarily you. If we were to rewrite this passage in light of the way that we think about things, this is how it would sound. And what I want you to get here is the contrast between a modern and an ancient disciple. And I'm going to give you the example of the modern disciple. If they wrote... These words, or Luke recorded what we would say, it would be something like this. We rejoice because we are counted worthy to receive material blessings in his name in this life. And I'll get to a deeper reality of what I'm saying here. We rejoice because we were counted worthy to receive the American dream for his name in this life. And this is how I think the reasoning continues as we try to make sense of the situation. We put in all of the hard work of college. We put in all of the hard work of grad school. We put all of the hard work in this or that training. We suffered through law school or we suffered to put somebody through law school or we suffered through seminary or to put somebody through seminary. Or we suffered through the math that you have to go through for a computer science degree, which is true suffering. Or we suffered through 50 years on the same job. And we are trained as Christians, and this is in a sense correct, that all of those exertions that were a part of our life, all of the hard work and effort was for the honor of our God. Now that is in a sense true. True. But what we are expecting as a result of all the hard work, and catch this, it is blessing now. And that's the big difference between the ancient and the modern the modern and the ancient. We expect the fruition of our dreams now. I put in all the hard work. I want a brand new whatever it is with a ski rack on the top. And I'm going to Aspen every winter. I I paid my dues. I made my sacrifices. And you see, that's why I rejoice now. I rejoice because I did put in the suffering and the affliction. I served in the church for 25 years as the whatever. And now it's time for me to be blessed in this life. That is my expectation. I will reach the consummation of my existence. And like I said, in a sense, that is true. We will receive many blessings. But notice how I'm placing the emphasis where we are seeking to receive some kind of consummation now and that is then that we will rejoice. And that's the difference. The disciples did not have the same mentality. But they did have many similarities with us. And I want to ask you a couple questions here. Did they not work hard like you work hard Did they not work hard for the Lord as you work hard? Did they not graduate from various colleges, if you will? Even the College of Christ was difficult to graduate from. Embarrassing for Peter in the denial three times. Let me ask you, don't they, the folks on this passage, will they not travel and be away from their families perhaps 90% of the time? They're going to make sacrifices, but here's the thing for them. What will they get from it? What is their expectation in this life now that they will receive? What is the fruit from all of their work? What will they sow, or what will they reap from what they have sowed? And what I mean is reap now. That's the real question. And this confronts the difference between the ancient and the modern. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about his world and how he views reality. What you're going to find is that the fruit that he will receive, and many Christians, even still today, we're in a pretty unique circumstance. You know what they're going to receive for their suffering and their effort? Shame. Beatings. Loss of property. That's the most they can hope for in this life. Paul says it like this, he says, instead, I sometimes think that God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war at the end of a victors parade condemned to die. And he's speaking to a group of people in the Corinthian church who think that they have it now. He says, we have become a spectacle to the entire world to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. But look at you and how wise you've already become. We are weak, but oh, you exist in power. He's confronting the now nature of it. You are honored, but we are ridiculed. And then he goes on to say even about the basics of life. Even now, we go hungry and thirsty and we don't have enough clothes to keep warm. This is the result of his effort. All the years within ministry, he goes on to say, we are often beaten and we have no home. We work wearily with our hands to earn our own living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. And here's the capstone. Here's the summary that Paul thinks of his life and the rewards that he has received now. We are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. That would be unbearable for the modern disciple. Because they expect something different. Because they're viewing reality differently. That's the whole point of this, is to see the difference in the reality where the disciples could rejoice in suffering for Christ's name. Do you see the difference in their expectations, their ambitions, their aspirations, their goals? The difference that the, between the modern church and the ancient disciple is that we in the modern world say, we will reign now. We will be like kings and queens now. We will have blessedness now. I will reach the consummate pinnacle of my existence now. The ancient disciples, however, put their hopes and their aspirations in an ultimate sense in the world to come. They said, we are like garbage now, but we will reign then. We are like garbage now, but we will be royalty then. We are like garbage now, but we will have blessedness then. Very, very different way of looking at reality. Their expectation for this world and their hopes for this present life were not for ultimate glory now, but that they would be counted worthy of being like Christ in his sufferings. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you see what this passage is teaching? How different the end goal of your life would be if you see what it means to exist in this season of life? As a kind of era the ultimate goal of life is that you could suffer for Christ. You could be ashamed for Christ's sake. Beneath our passage, in other words, is something that everybody here needs. It's something that everyone's been scratching for. Beneath our passage is a great reality, however, that modern disciples have trouble seeing. And it is a distinction that has to be made. What is the pinnacle of existence on this earth now? Let me ask you, how do you know when you are a good human being now? How do you know that you have reached the greatest ambition now? How do you know that you are living in the honorable life now? Modern disciples were answered this by repeating things that will only be given in the world to come not realizing what this season is and what it means to be a true human being now. We think that the good life now is glory now and earthly blessings now and health now and popularity now. And
3: all of those, in their
0: ultimate sense, are future realities and you must wait for it. The most pressing question we can ask at this point is Well, what is the picture of the good life now? Apparently, I've got a picture of the good life later. What does it look like now? I want to give you a picture that the church has used for so long that we have somehow kind of kept under a cloak of what the ultimate human existence looks like right now. you want to know who you're supposed to be now? John chapter 19, verse 5. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now the problem that we have when we read something like this, which is why it's been placed under a cloak, is because we read the scriptures as if the only thing important about it is that it's making some historical statement. Pilate said such and such. Jesus stood there with such and such clothes. Historical realities. Yeah, that's true. But that doesn't get to the heart of it. The apostle John didn't record these things so that you would just have historical facts. Anybody could do that. What is the theological significance of Jesus and what he's wearing and him being, and him say, Pilate saying, this is man. That's really what's going on here. This is humanity. The issue is what significance does the Apostle John intend by this snapshot. And if you know how the Apostle John works, he works different than the other Apostles, then you realize that there is, in this moment, a picture of the ultimate humanity at a given era of time in history. A time before the end. And the first part of it is that it is signified. You can see that there's a consummate reality before you that John displays because he's wearing consummate reality garb. He is wearing a crown. He's saying, I'm the pinnacle of existence in this era. I'm wearing a crown. I'm the capstone. Or he's wearing the purple robe saying that he's royalty. He's above all. He's been elevated. We are to look at him as a kind of ultimate reality to which we would all strive Now, in this world, but here's the irony with it all, is that God is so wise that he does not give Him a crown of gold and jewels. It is a crown of thorns. And it turns our existence on its head, and it makes you realize it's not what you think it's going to be. And the purple, though it really is a real robe, and though it is real purple, it was placed on Christ as an emblem of shame and mocking from this world. And God is saying, this is what it means to be human now. And if you wanted to put it into a word, if you wanted to have a kind of illuminating flash and to see the reality of what it means to be human in this era, we see that in this life, our aspiration, our greatest aspiration, our greatest honor, our greatest glory is to be like Jesus Christ and voluntarily give up our lives even for God and His kingdom. You are most human in this era when you are like Christ in his sufferings. And that is the reality underneath the disciples saying, or Luke recording it, we rejoice in our shaking. We're getting closer and closer to the reality of our existence in this era. Because receiving shame for this world on the behalf of the name of Christ is the constant act of glory for my life now. Or, as the Puritans said, they had a saying that was passed around by them to encourage one another. As our greatest good comes through the sufferings of Christ, so God's greatest glory that he has from his saints comes through their suffering. There is no movie that the world publishes. There is no advertisement that the world publishes. When they are trying to show you what it means, what they're trying to do, almost in every piece of advertising and movie, is they're saying, this is what it looks like when you make it. And here you have opposites from a biblical reality. Pilate saying, no, behold the man. This is what it looks like when you make it now. It looks like the suffering Christ. That is underneath what the disciples are doing. You can see how different that is for us. Topsy-turvy and upside down. What are the deep realities that God uses to make us not only bold, but rejoicing in the face of affliction. Last week, it was to see Christ in his ascension glory that motivates us that we might see the upcoming us in another era. But what about now? What does it mean To be the ultimate human being now. Our answer this morning is that it means to find glory in our shame for Christ's name. May we be emboldened once again as Christ intended from John chapter 12 where he says this to his disciples whether ancient or modern. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my Father, will honor. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you and we give you thanks. O Lord Jesus Christ, most mighty King of kings, we thank you for your persecution. We bless you for the hardships that were forced upon you, even in the days of your childhood. When you fled from the face of the most wicked King Herod, and were driven forth as a stranger and an outcast from your own land, and had to enter in secret that land of Egypt, from which in the days of old you had with a mighty hand led forth the children of Israel. Grant to us now, we ask you, O our beloved Jesus, let us tread, at least in some small degree, let us walk in your steps with the same kind of patience Give us grace not to murmur and whisper when we have to suffer wrong. Give us grace not to complain. But rather, give us the grace to humbly give way even to people that are angry in our life. Help us to submit cheerfully even when people laugh at us for your sake. When people speak evil of us, give us patience. When anybody frustrates or annoys us, we ask that you would give us the grace to curb our anger as you demonstrated your patience. We ask earnestly that instead you would give us the grace to pray for such people, that we would humble ourselves beneath them, becoming their servants, like you became ours. We ask that you would give us grace to live peaceably with others, that we would give way to them and consider their interests greater than our own, and that we would be able to patiently bear with them. And we pray, Lord, that as we make all of these sacrifices for your namesake, that you would receive all honor and glory. Amen. Let us sing our final song together. We're going to stand and sing victory in Jesus. And I just want to point out to you so you don't feel like it clashes with the sermon. The very end of the first page of the hymn. It says this. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. There is a future reality that is not ours yet. Let us remember that. Let's stand and sing together.